we really want to thank the Lord for everything that he has done, everything that he has been showing us, his mercy, his grace. What a great opportunity also is to open the scriptures and, and continue thanking him for everything that we see that he has done. As we continue our series in the letter to James, of James, the book of James, we're going to go to the middle section of this chapter 1. So if you brought your Bibles, open it in James chapter 1. We're going to be studying there. While you're looking at your scriptures, let me tell you a quick story that will set us into, into this uh, message today. A number of white men was uh, coming to his office uh, with a big box of donuts. He was supposed to be on a diet, but he ended up coming to his office with that box. When his, uh, you know, uh, the people that he worked with saw him that he was just eating donuts, they asked him, I thought you were on a diet. What happened? Tell us. Well, let me tell you what happened. He says, this morning when I was on my way to work, I just happened to pass in front of a donut shop. And um, knowing that I was on a diet, I was uh, the Lord to help me. And I said, Lord, if you don't want me to eat donuts today, let not be any parking space in front of the coffee shop. <laughs> but if you want me to eat donuts today, let me find one right there in front of the coffee shop. And what happened? They asked him. Well, after my 10th time around the block, I found one right there in front of the coffee shop. It sounds like uh, many of us, not just eating donuts, but every time that we try to resist any temptation, Sometimes we are already defeated. All of us know what is to face temptation. But all of us know what is to be defeated by temptation. And many times when we heard the word temptation, we only give a one connotation that has to be something about sensual or sexual. But it can be anything that entices us to do what is not according to God's will. The good news is uh, the believers today can have victory over temptation because God always provides a way out. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians um, 10 uh, the following. He says that he always will give you a way out. And many times we misinterpret uh, that verse thinking that God will never give you anything you cannot handle, which is not in the Bible. This is the scripture that tells us that every time that you face any temptation, the Lord will always give you a way out. In some ways, he will remind you uh, who you are. In other ways, he will bring somebody in mind or a person who will call you right at that moment. But he always going to give you a way. That's a promise that he did. So if you want to get an idea of this message today, it's so simple. To overcome temptation, we need to recognize its concept, its cause, and its cure. We need to be mindful about 
what is exactly what the intention is and it's not. We need to understand that there is a curse that follows, it's a progress, it's a process that follows, and we need to be mindful of that. But also, we need to recognize what is the cure so we can apply it into our life. We can actually be against temptation. James is a writer that is so practical. And in his letter, he's, he's putting us in a difficult position to, to understand that, that in life, we're going we're gonna to deal with trials, but also we're going to deal with temptation. The two of them, we're going we're gonna to deal with in our lives. Last week, we learned the first 12 verses that trials are coming to our lives. And the Lord, in many ways, used the test to prove our faith, to help us to understand how strong is our faith. I mentioned to you the last time, God doesn't want to know if you are faithful or not. He knows already. He just wants you to know how much you have learned to depend on him in every circumstances of life. So he wants his audience, when he talks about temptation, he wants his audience in verse 12, beginning on verse 12, that we need to understand what is this concept, what is exactly temptation and what is not and how it works. So in our text today, James is teaching us how to overcome temptation. And he does it by outlining three things. The concept of temptation, the course of temptation, the progress, and finally, the cure against temptation. So if your Bibles are open, open it in verse 13 in James 1. The first one is the concept of temptation. What is it? Well, I will begin, let's establish what it means with temptation. Temptation is a solicitation to do evil in order to disconnect us from God's will. Temptation is an invitation to do what is wrong according to God's eyes in order to deviate us, to kind of uh, take us away from the path that he has laid before us. He holds the idea of a seduction, of alluring into evil. More subtly, persuasion is persuading. The enemy of God, our enemy as well, Satan, his goal is to disconnect us from God by pulling us in the opposite direction where he, God, wants us to go. So it's interesting that when you read verse 2, for instance, and then verse 12, and then verse 13, you will find that the same word for trials in verse 2 is, excuse me, <coughs> perasmos, that's the Greek word, is translated also tempted in verse 12. And it's used in verse 13 and 14 as well. So the word for testing, the trials and temptation, is kind of the same word. One is a noun and the other one is a verb. But it will depend on the source and the purpose and the outcome to establish the difference. So here James is transitioning us from trials to temptations. And he's telling us that we need to understand both the process or well, these events can occur simultaneously. 
What I mean by that is trials and temptation can happen at the same time. God can bring a trial into your life. Satan can use it to entice you and invite you to fall into that temptation. You remember Matthew 4, verse 1, when the Spirit took Jesus Christ to the wilderness to be tested by, the, by God in some ways? At the same time, Satan was there, and he was not testing Jesus. He was just tempting Jesus. So it was happening simultaneously. We read that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the Spirit was leading him, but the devil was tempting him. And both were happening simultaneously. It's so important for us to realize this. This concept is important to, so you can understand that, that every time that you are facing a trial, that you are being tested, there is also a temptation coming together. And it will be depending on the results. What is exactly what you do will determine how strong your faith is, how mature you are. So when we face temptation, we often face God at work and also Satan at work simultaneously. God is after a trial to develop us, to mature us, to, to, to grow. Satan is after a temptation to defeat us. And they are both happening simultaneously. And that's why we have a spiritual conflict constantly. Remember, Paul was kind of arguing, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, that's exactly what I'm doing. This is what is happening at the same time. So God tests. He tests us to bring us our worth, our best, to strengthen us, to mature in our faith, while Satan in our last tempt us to bring our worth to sin and disobey God. So every time that you're facing a trial, be ready. Like we see in the cartoons that you see a little angel here and a little devil here, something like that. Because remember, Satan is still on this earth. And he is not precisely tempting you, but he is enticing you to taste something that you and your own nature sinful nature already would like to taste. It's like the waiter who is coming before you with a platter full of desserts. He's not giving you anything. He's not shoveling anything in your mouth. He just says, would you like anything? <laughs> and it's you that say, yeah, not only one, maybe two, maybe three. You see, that is what happened. You probably, your sinful nature wanted to get something, but Satan is so smart. He knows how to allure you. Heaven dealt with trials in the first 11 verses. James now talks about testing and temptation. Listen, listen to what verse 12, no, I don't have it here, so you have it in your Bible. He says, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Here are the two words. Afterward, they, they, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love them. On a side note, let me tell you something that is really crucial when we open the Bible, when we try to study the Scriptures. Every time that we study the Bible, any passage, the first question that we must ask is, what do I see? 
what is what the author is saying and not saying. It's so important because we're so prone to interpret what we're reading. So if you are ever going to do an inductive Bible study, which, by the way, men and women and youth are going to be doing inductive Bible study, don't be afraid. It's so important because many times we tend to listen the word to be taught and we try to interpret what we're reading, but we don't spend enough time observing what is exactly saying. What is saying James, for instance, in this verse? A quick read, reading might, might, be, might make us think that he's saying that only those who are super, super religious, those who are faithful, are the only ones who are going to get the crown of life when they endure temptation. But that's not necessarily what James is saying. If you observe carefully, you will understand that those who receive the crown of life are the ones who love God. No wonder Martin Luther didn't, didn't like this letter too much. Actually, he was fighting that this letter cannot be included in the New Testament. But there were some other aspects, and he knew that he was the half-brother of Jesus Christ, so he didn't, he didn't want to mention too much. But the way that James' style of argumentation is happening here, it's like, in some ways, the device that he used, that's why it's so important for us to understand what is the figure of speech, what is exactly, you know, uh, the, how the letter is, is, is built, is written. James makes this type of argument several times in the letter. When, we start, when he's talking about faith and works, he is calling basic assumptions into a question. And this is exactly what he's doing here. So notice that this passage is not focused on who will or not receive the crown of life. James focuses our attention on the prize that has been promised to those who love God but exhorting us into an action. So what is James' goal here? To motivate those who are reading him, his audience, to faithfully follow God even in the midst of life adversity. That's what he's trying to present. By returning to the topic of trials and endurance in verse 12, James creates an opportunity to tackle a very thorny issue because even though he knew that the people reading his letter were going through a difficult time, they were facing persecution, many of them, many of those believers, Jewish believers, already start thinking that why God was causing that to them, why God was tempting them. So to correct their theology in some ways, he's writing this letter just to, to make sure that they can understand what is what is happening? God is not responsible for the temptations we face. James is aware of what they're going through, and he wants to clarify two things. He wants for them to make a differentiation between the external trials and the internal temptations that every human being experiences. So there are two things that he's mentioning in verse 13. The first part of verse 13 says, and remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. 
He knew probably that they were thinking that, James. So temptation is always present in life. It's always present. Nobody is immune to temptation like nobody is immune to trials and tribulations and testing. Notice that the verse doesn't say if we are tempted. It says when we are tempted. Meaning, it doesn't matter when, <laughs> you will face temptation. So when we are facing temptation, we are facing a choice, brothers and sisters. We are facing the choice to think, do we love God more or sin more? Do we love God more or Satan more? Do we love God more or ourselves more? So God will allow the trial to develop us by choosing him. Besides, Satan will make, will make it a temptation to decline our spiritual life to choose him. So it will depend. Trials will help us to grow, to do good into our walking with the Lord and to bring him glory. Temptation has the opportunity, if we endure it, it became a, 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 a test. But if we fail, then the glory that belongs to God is given to Satan. So it's up to us. To whom are you willing to glorify by the response that you have in every temptation? To God, so endure it. To Satan, fall for it. So the choice is ours. Which leads me to the second part. Temptation is never prompted by God. Look at verse 13, the second part. God is never tempted to do wrong and never tempts anyone else. Here James is offering a sharp rebuke to those who find so easy, those who make excuses, blaming God for everything that happened in their lives. Oh, God is tempting me. Or, I don't know, you probably heard that. Even blaming Satan for these kind of things. Oh, the devil made me do it. There's no such a thing, like I told you before. You did it. You fall into the allures of Satan. In his commentary, uh, James Curtis Bond, he points out this interesting dynamic about blaming God for everything that happened to us. He says, Man is naturally inclined to shift the blame from himself to God for his moral failures. One needs only to recall the words of Adam after he was charged with the first sin committed on earth. In Genesis 3, 12, the man replied, I was, it was the woman that you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Lord, I was happy. I was content to be single with the animals and everything. And suddenly I took a nap and then I wake up and look. You see, she did it. Well, not only was blaming the wife, he was blaming God. The woman that you gave me made me do it. Since that moment on, we human beings, men, women, old and young, we are always blaming God for whatever has been our poor decisions. Why a good God 
made these horrible things happen? That's one of the typical questions that we hear. And James is telling them, he's telling them that God doesn't have to do anything with that. He's not tempting anybody. He cannot be tempted. And this, this is something interesting because the Greek word that he used basically, literally means he, God is untemptable. He cannot be tempted by any kind of sin, by any kind of evil. While God allows temptation, he does not counsel. He cannot tempt it. So God does not have any kind of receiver internally, like a device to receive sin. So that means that if God is causing you or tempting you to do evil, that means that there is something in him probably that can be bad so he can do that to you. So, but God is holy. There is nothing in him, no device, no receiver to get sin. Therefore, nothing sinful can come to him. Jesus could be perfect just because when he was procreated in Mary's womb, the sperm of the Holy Spirit get into the eggs of Mary, protecting him for nothing sinful coming to him. And he was born without sin. He was perfect. He was protected in that way. But not us. All of us, when we are born, we are born with a sinful nature. It's like a virus that we got. Even though we're babies, you can see as the baby grows up how they can show you the little sinful nature that they have. That's why when they're little, little, they start lying. And you cannot, you're not teaching them how to lie. They, they learn by themselves. It's interesting what happened. We got a device inside us because we were born in sin. And then by selection, we choose to sin. So by birth and by election, we are sinners. So... Since the enemy's goal is to keep us from developing spiritually, growing spiritually, and experiencing God's will and purpose and plan, well, he invites us to come away, to be away from God, and he uses this precious tool that is called temptation. He seeks to defeat us. Does, any, does anyone here has been defeated by temptation? Can you raise your hand? Those of you who are not raising your hand, you have been deceived right now. Because <laughs> we all face temptation. We all. God does not tempt anyone. But he allows us to be tempted. We, we, we read the story of Adam and Eve. Remember Job? He allows Satan to tempt him. Remember Joseph? He was strong enough to... Not so, to succumb to the temptation that Mrs. Potiphar was enticing him to do. And he paid the consequences. But he remembered, how can I do this to my Lord? But what about the means after God's own heart? David, with a similar situation. He succumbed. And he paid the consequences. And death came into his family. A lot of things happened. 
Satan was alluring Judas to do things, and he couldn't resist it. And the same situation happened to us. Although God doesn't tempt us, he allows temptation. So we, together with trials, can learn how to depend on him and overcome those temptations. So it's important to understand the concept. Number two, it's important to understand the progress, the course of temptation. That moves us to verse 14 and six to 16. James is moving us from the concept of temptation to the course of temptation, the progression, the process by which temptation occurs. And it's important for us to understand it so we can be ready when temptation comes and knock on the doors of our hearts. Verse 14 says, temptation comes from our own desires. Not God, not Satan, from our own sinful desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters, says James. Every trial, every external difficulty carries with it a temptation, an inner enticement to sin. God might, may bring uh, and allow us trials, but he is not the author of temptation. Enticement to sin comes from our own sinful natures, not from God. So what is the process? Well, James is giving us at least four steps that we can see. The first one in verse 14 is a desire. A desire. Those desires. Adam and Eve, they were together. When the little snake was coming, they were not afraid of her. Maybe there were more, many snakes there. But that one in particular could speak. And using the half-truth of God, he's trying to allure them, to entice them to commit sin, to disobey God. Remember Genesis 3? He says to the woman, and I'm just not putting the blame on the woman. Where was Adam when the serpent was communicating with Eve, right, next to her. Both of them. He says um, that God really says that when you eat from the fruit of this tree that you will die. He twisted a little bit the truth. And, and Eve knew. She corrected her. He said, no, 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 no. We can eat from all the trees. We can eat from all the, except for this one. And then he lowered the temperature a little bit, I mean, lower up the temperature. He's saying, saying, oh, ah, you're not going to die. You're going to be killing him. Interestingly, the same sin that Satan himself committed, he was trying to entice them to commit. But everything started with desire. Because when we read in verse 3 in Genesis, the fruit was desirable. It looks good. It was attractive. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. The word enticement is a, is a term that we can use in, in fishing. Those of you who are fishing. Mr. Fox was trying to teach me how to fish, and I was just hooking myself with a, with a hook every time. <laughs> My son was better than me than when he was trying to teach us how to fish. But I noticed something. You know, when you hit the hook, you get a worm. 
And the worm, you can wrap it up in the hook, you hide it, and then you throw it into the water. Because for the fish, the fish is attracted to the worm, not to the hook, but the hook is hidden. That's exactly what Satan does with us. And, and James is explaining it here. He's presenting something attractive, something that our desires, actually our sinful nature wants it. He presented like a good thing, but he never going to show us the hook until we, it's too late. So the desire is the first thing. The bait is dropped. We can be hooked by the temptation like a fish, by a worm, because we're hungry. Hungry for the fulfillment of our physical or spiritual needs. God promises to provide for these needs, but Satan also knows about our hungers. And although we, he cannot force us to partake, he is skilled. He knows when. He knows where. He knows how to drop the bait so he might lure us away from God. Not only that, in our inner desire, we are attracted to that bait. So that's why James is saying, each one is carried away and enticed. So in our hearts, it's the two things, the bait and the hook, right there with us. And Satan is using those things to distract us, to move us away. So we're implying here that the lure by a bait happened in our hearts. To pull that fish out of its comfortable hiding place, the bait must be attractive and interesting, says James. The second point is disobedience. First is the desire. And then we let it sink more, and then we disobey. In verse 15, we read it. Sin occurs when we yield into the temptation. When lust has conceived, and it's interesting that this term is about giving birth. So when you fail into the temptation, when you are tempted and you fail, you're having a baby. And when you are, and this is an interesting point, one of the commentators says, when you already decided that you're going to take the bait, it's too late. You are already pregnant, and you're already going to conceive. And it's going to be a horrible little baby called sin. There is nothing you can do. When the, you cannot abort him. You have to carry to term. And you're going to deal with that baby, and it will be after that baby is in your arms when you will make a decision. Oh, am I going to continue feeding him? Or am I going to let him die of hunger? And that's the problem that we face every single day. In our internal hearts, even though when we became believers, it doesn't mean that the old self die. It means that it's somewhere there. The new nature is coming, and the more that I'm walking by the Spirit, the more that I can feed my spiritual walk with Him. That new nature is becoming stronger, while the sinful nature is just becoming weaker and weaker. But the moment that I start feeding the sinful nature, that becomes stronger, and the other one becoming weaker. So somebody put it this way, that in, inside of every human heart, there are like two wolves fighting constantly. One represents the sinful nature, and the other one the spiritual nature. 
in the fight that they have constantly every day, who do you think will win the battle? The one you feed the most. That's the stronger one. Paul is telling us the same thing in Galatians 5 when he says, okay, those who suffer the flesh, they will produce this kind of fruit and all the wrong things that he's mentioned. But if you walk by the Spirit, there will be a fruit. Love, joy, peace. But it's up to you where are you going to be walking? To whom, which nature are you going to be feeding? So disobedience is the next step here. To follow the fishing analogy, when desire and bait meet, and we choose to take the bait, sin occurs. Remember, temptation to choose the bait is not sin, but taking it is sin. Temptation is not sin. Taking it, falling, is what is sin. And then what produced that baby in, in the second part of verse 15 is death. Sin results in death. When Adam and Eve, the Lord promised them, you are not going to eat for this fruit. You can eat for any other tree, but not for this one. From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From the, that one, you are not going to eat. The moment that you eat from that, you will die. Remember, they didn't die when they ate the forbidden fruit. They stayed there for many, many years. It, it's because we sometimes don't understand what that means. Death actually means separation. That's what means separation. If it's physical death, our spirit is separated from our bodies on this earth. If it's a spiritual death, our souls are completely separated from God in eternity, condemned in hell. So in many ways, death is also happening with the relationship. The moment that you fell into the temptation, your communion, your relationship with God is broken. You are separated. Don't pretend that nothing happened at the moment that you fall into any temptation. At that moment, you're not losing your salvation, but the joy that you have of being saved and in communion with God is broken. But God is so good that he knows what can happen, that he knows that we are frail, that if we are repentant and we come back to him and we pour ourselves and ask forgiveness, he is willing to forgive us. He's gracious enough to forgive us. But don't pretend that you can fool God. He knows. He knows who we are. So the last thing is deception. That's why in verse 16 says, don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. Don't be deceived. Don't think that you can do one thing and the other one. Literally, the word deceived means to be led down to the wrong path. James issues a warning in the form of a command. Don't allow lust to blur your thinking so that you forsake the truth to follow a lie. The idea that giving in, the, in temptation will lead us to contentment is a complete fallacy. And it's inconsistent what we read in the scriptures. The battlefront for resisting being drawn away from God is in the mind of the believer. Each time we yield to temptation, we believe a lie. And what is worse, we start leaving one too. Last one, the good news is there is a cure. There, there is a solution for the temptation that we face. And we find it right there in verses 17 and 18. 
Remember that I read at the beginning, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He says, Paul says, the temptation in your life are not different from what others have experienced. So your temptation and mine is the same. The same that Jesus confronted. Those temptations in the wilderness are very similar to us. The temptation to be spectacular, famous, popular, to do, to, to do things that, so people can follow us. Jesus faced him down there. He, and Paul says, and God is faithful. He will not allow us to be tempted more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so you can endure. God is more interested. He is not going to tempt you, but he offers help to you. He offers help. In what way he offers help? He offers help recognizing that the people and situations that you are going through will lead you to trouble so you can stay away. He offers help by telling you that the best answer sometimes to when you face temptation is not to look around, but run away. Exactly what Joseph did when Mrs. Potiphar was enticing him to commit sin, sexual sin with her. And he was thinking to himself, he was saying, how can I do this to the Lord? He's never failed me. So he ran. He ran. He, he even, Mrs. Potiphar grabbed him from the coat and he just ran, almost half naked. And then she accused him of a rape or something else. But, but he knew there is no way that I can reason. And many of us, that's what I do. Okay, let, let's talk about it. You know, if you are a recovery alcoholic and you would like to save your friends who are still in the bar, come on, man. Why you had to go there? Do you know that when you put a white glove, it's the white glove, the one who has the mud, but never the mud has the whiteness of the glove? So if you know that you cannot resist, why you are continued there? If you know that certain hours in front of the computer will cause you to fail and see pornography, what are you doing it every night? Why, why, are you trying to prove that you are stronger? God would prefer for you to shut it down and go the other way. And it's exactly what James is telling here. He is providing for you a way out, it says Paul. Listen to verse 17. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down from us to us from God, the Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chooses to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. If I can summarize this last point, we'll be with one word. Focus. Turn my attention to something else. Turn my eyes toward God, toward Jesus. The first thing that, that we can do is turn your eyes toward the goodness of God. Focus on God's goodness. He is the father of lights. And it's a great analogy what, he, what James is telling us here. The sun, all the stars, all the planets, all the luminaries in heaven. God created them. When he says father of lights, it's a great term that means he is the generator. He is the creator of all those lights. And lights is a symbol of holiness. It's a symbol of purity. 
But even when the sun is in the center, it never changes. You see how the stars and the planets go around and turn around, and there is always a dark side of, of those planets? That's what James is telling us. Even those lights, they have a little shade when the sun is not focusing on them because they are turning, they're moving. Not so with God. He doesn't change. He's immutable. He is holy, always holy. Like the sun. The sun never changes. They don't have different shades of sun. We say that the sun rises and, and, and go down. No, that's not true. Our planet is moving. That's why sometimes we are daylight and sometimes we're at night time. There is shadow. It's a great analogy. Focus on the goodness of God. He's always good all the time. And all the time, God is good. So when you are tempted to fail, think about God's goodness. That's the first thing that you need to focus on God's goodness. He is the perfect Father who gives you every good gift. The apostle says, Paul says in Philippians 4 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence of anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Focus on those things. Focus on those things. And we saw, somebody says this, sow a thought and reap an action. Sow an action and reap a habit. Sow a habit and reap a character. Sow a character and reap a destiny. If we saw these thoughts consistently, we are better able to cut out the weeds of temptation. We are able to resist them. Focus on God's wounds. The second, focus on God's word. Look at what it says in verse 18. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. He's talking about the father of light. Now he's talking about the children of light, the children of God. He gave us birth. He made us born again in our second nature, the, the, the spiritual nature by the word of God. God brings people to salvation through the word of truth. That's the gospel. God's word, having trusted him as, an etern- as, as, the, belie- as the Lord Jesus Christ, is what gives you eternal life. And we're continuing to rely on his word. Remember one, uh, Psalm 119.9? How can a young man keep his way pure? Remember? By keeping it according to your word. And in verse 11 says, Your word, Lord, I have trusted in my heart that I may not sin against you. So the word of God will help us not to lead, not to yield into temptation. So trust in the goodness of God. Trust in God's word as well. And number three, focus on God's plan. The last part of verse 18 says, And we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. Other translation says, We became his first fruits. And that's so important. Because when you read the Old Testament and you read the, the book of, um, uh, you know, uh, Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, specifically in, in Exodus, you will learn a lot about the different festivities that they have. And the Feast of the First Fruits. If you have, uh, let's say, 10 acres, one of those acres belongs to God. That's, that's exactly what James is having in mind. Whatever you have, remember, there is a portion of what you have that belongs to God. You yourself are the first fruits of those who became saved. You are the God's more prized possession. 
So if you can focus your mind on God's goodness, and you can wrap up your mind on God's word, and you can reflect how precious you are for God, chances are that you're going to have second thoughts to fall into temptation. That's the cure. It's up to you to apply it or not. As the worship team comes, I want you to reflect on that because how important it is for us in everything that we do that we can focus on him and his goodness and his word and who we are as children of God. I will invite you to turn your eyes upon Jesus because he is the one who deserves all of our attention. So trials, testing, God will use them for us to grow and he will get the glory. Temptations, God will use them even though the enemy will try to allure you, will try to convince you, will try to put the bait to attract you and to take you away from God. My prayer for you today is may the temptations who are neutral, they are not sin, will help you to remain faithful, strong, when you focus on him, the perfecter of our faith. Heavenly Father, we come to you, and as we sing this word, may the words of this beautiful song can be our prayer at this, at this time. We want to turn our eyes upon you, Jesus, and we want that you can protect us from the evil one, that you can protect us from our evil desires, so we can look for you to establish that relationship with you and to continue growing as we face trials and tribulations and temptations that we can endure until the end. Because you have promised to those who love you, Father, you have eternal life secure for them. We love you, Lord. We need you. In Jesus we pray. Amen.